This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Now, you might recall last week we, we talked uh, about worldview. We defined worldview. We then moved on into uh, this idea of infallible proofs that we see in the book of Acts. And as we looked at infallible proofs, if I recall correctly of where we left off, we left off with this idea that uh, uh, those infallible proofs in the book of Acts were really those, that sensory data those disciples had, that they could see, they could touch, they could heal uh, Jesus, because, and that was how they knew he had been risen. And in the case of the apostles, their sight, their hearing, their touch, all testified to the fact that Jesus was alive. And if you recall, Luke said that these proofs were infallible, that their senses could be trusted. And while we could talk an entire course about theory of knowledge tonight, we're going to conclude this idea of critical or of worldview and of critical thinking. And we are going to really look at how we know things. Because I think we'll look at this question when it comes to the risen Savior. How do you know? Were you there? There's a lot of trust. In fact, it's not merely a spiritual event that you're trusting. Our entire belief system is based on an actual historical event that had to have happened for anything that we believe to have any merit. If, as Paul said, there is no resurrection, we are all men most miserable. I'm not confident, and I don't have a horrible life. I don't want to paint the picture that way, but I'm not confident I would have chosen this if it wasn't true. I mean, there is pleasure in sin for a season. And while we think, and, I, and, and, and there's other people say, well, if all else, at least it was a, you know, at least I trusted in that and that was good enough and I, I had a good life as a Christian. I, you talk to Job. I think if Job looked back on his life, he would have said that was not fun. But in the end, he saw the glory of God. And you will too. But it isn't always fun as you go through it. But how do we know things? So that's the question we're going to tackle this evening. How do you know what you think you know? And we call these theories of knowledge. Now, the theory of knowledge, that those questions have been the focus of Western philosophy for almost 400 years now. Now, while humanity has always been fascinated with what we call epistemology or the study of truth, it really was the post-Reformation era that produced perhaps some of the greatest advances, but I'm also going to say maybe some of the greatest deficiencies in the study of knowledge. And if you look at the Dark Ages, what we call the Dark Ages, there was a lot of superstition. 
There was a lot of uh, illiteracy, and so people just trusted. They just they trusted what they heard. They trusted maybe what someone told them, and uh, and and they they really didn't think much for themselves. And I, but I don't want to say they weren't thinkers. I mean, if you look at the at the uh, cathedrals that were built during the Dark Ages, the 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 masonry and the the work that was done is magnificent. So I don't want to paint the picture that they that the Dark Ages were just really dumb and now we're really smart. In fact, I think we've studied some things about knowledge where now we profess ourselves, and I say this as a culture, we profess ourselves to be wise, but we're really just fools. So there were some advances, but there's also some deficiencies. And yes, we've thrown off some of the shackles of superstition of the Dark Ages. Uh, but all the work in philosophy has still failed to produce a coherent, cogent theory of knowledge. We don't actually, and I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag right now, we don't know how we know what we know. I mean, you, and I say science and, and philosophy, they, they've, they've wrestled with this. And it's fascinating if you ever looked at just a history of philosophy and Western philosophy primarily, just the pendulum has swung all different ways of how we know what we know. So I'm going to oversimplify some things this morning, and I know I am. But for our purposes in this course, we can isolate Western philosophy's theory of knowledge. And do you know what I mean by that? A theory is just really a good guess. And knowledge is what we know. How do we know what we think we know? And we could take the theory of, uh, of Western philosophy's theories of knowledge, and we really can separate them into two categories. The first are those who say, we acquire knowledge through reason. Now, we will call these rationalists. Rationalists. Now, don't confuse rationalists or rationalism with the term rational. We're going to see later in this lecture and some other lectures coming in a, in a few weeks that there is a role for rational thought. We need people to think rationally. It's good to be rational. And in our usage of the term, rational as opposed to being irrational. So when I use this term rationalism, or rationalist, don't confuse that with the, the simple term of being rational. And I'll explain why. But here's a good point I'm just going to throw in as an aside. Anytime you put the ISM on the end of a word, it usually becomes bad. Ism. An ism. You can be a rational, you can be rational, but rationalism isn't good. You can be a human, and that's always good. But a humanist and humanism is not. You can be, and I'll, I'm going to step out on a, on a limb here that may be quite thin. You can, be a funda, you can be fundamental, but fundamentalism is starting to get a bad name. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on in a couple weeks. Ism usually goes bad. So don't confuse that word rational with rationalism. Rational, you, we want people to be rational because that's really rational is thought. It's really someone who has the ability to reason. And that is a God-given ability. And it's really, 
rationalist, to be, a ration, to be rational, I should say, is what separates you from animals. So, let's look then, the rationalist. The rationalist, they believe that knowledge is only gained through thought. In other words, we have the ability to think, and our thinking faculties is what give us knowledge. Reason produces knowledge. It is innate. It is inside you. Now, this theory was made popular by what many might consider to be the first modern philosopher, René Descartes. It was Descartes who famously said, you'll see the words up there, I think, therefore I am. Now, Descartes developed this, what is called the cognito argument, in order to find out absolute truth. If we doubt, here's how, here's how Descartes reasoned. It's not pronounced Descartes. It is Descartes, all right? Uh, so, Descartes, he developed this argument, and here's what he said. If we doubt, have you ever doubted something? If you ever doubt, according to Descartes, then we cannot be absolutely certain. Wow. Blow your mind, right? If you doubt about something, you can't be absolutely certain about it. And if we are not absolutely certain, then absolute truth is unknown or maybe cannot even be knowable. If you doubt something, you cannot say that it is absolutely true. Now, we often do that. We'll say things like, I know, I know that I am saved. And yet, you doubt your salvation sometimes. Maybe not now. Maybe you've matured and you've spiritually grown and you don't. But there was a time that I doubted my salvation. There's been times when other people have doubted my salvation. Testimony. And, and so if I say, hey, I, if I doubt something, then I don't really know it. We cannot be absolutely certain. If we can't be absolutely certain, then absolute truth is unknown or cannot be knowable. Thus, everything around us can be doubted. It's unknowable because it can be doubted. That's what he said. I can doubt everything. I can doubt the existence of these chairs. I can doubt the, I can doubt the existence of, of time. I can doubt the existence of everything. I can just doubt it. I just don't think it exists. You say, well... That's kind of a crazy thought. And, and Descartes said, yeah, that's, that really makes no sense because I see this and I see that and I see things. Well, but I'm the one seeing it. Do I exist? Maybe everything's just a figment of my imagination. And he says, so, well, what about me? Do I exist? And here's what he says. Everything around us is unknowable because it can be doubted. Take, for example, your reaction to the external world around you. How can you be sure, so sure that any of it exists? To claim your senses tell you it exists is problematic. 
because your perceptions are not necessarily reality. Here is one of my pet peeve statements in this world. Perception is reality. That is not true. Because you are perceiving something. What you're saying is when you say, well, perception is reality, what you're saying is the way I perceive it is truth. I am the standard. And that's dangerous. Because we all see things from different perspectives. And so he was saying, you can't trust your senses. Always. So after doubting the reality of the external world, Descartes, he began to turn inward and began then to doubt his own mind. You know, maybe I don't think, maybe I'm not here, but here is where he got caught in circular reasoning. In order to doubt, listen to this, he would have to be thinking about doubt. He says, I doubt who I am, I I, I, don't, I don't even know if I exist, so I don't know anything. And so the only way I, though, can doubt is I have to think about doubting. And then he says, if he was thinking about doubting, then he must necessarily exist to do so. And he could not doubt his own existence because he would have been unable to doubt if he did not exist. He wouldn't have been able to think if he didn't exist. That's where he comes to say, I think, therefore I am. Or in other words, I think I don't exist, therefore I do. Because he said, thinking things exist. Now, here, here, here is the argument. It goes something like this. If I attempt to doubt my own existence, then I am thinking. And, and just try that. Try to doubt your own existence without thinking about your existence. Just try it. In fact, don't think about thinking right now. It reminds me of the story that, uh, uh, you know, someone once said that every 15 minutes, someone thinks about Abraham Lincoln. In 15 minutes, we'll probably think about Abraham Lincoln, and someone will be thinking about Abraham Lincoln for the rest of the uh, uh, there, there was a comedian, of course, he's, in, I think he's in jail, maybe not, uh, Bill Cosby, and uh, he used to talk in one of his stand-up comedy acts about how they would play as kids, and they would say to someone, you go stand over in this corner, and uh, you cannot come out of this uh, uh, corner until you stop thinking about a pink polar bear. And every time they would ask this person, Are you stop have you stopped thinking about the pink polar bear? The person is thinking about a pink polar bear. If I attempt to doubt my existence, I am thinking. So try it. Try not to think about your existence. You would have to think to do that. And since thinking, and he said his argument was, thinking things exist. Now, why would he say something that thinks exists? Because the act of thinking, it exists. Therefore, I exist at the very least, as a thinking thing. You cannot non-exist and still think. And what René Descartes was really, what he's saying is, we have a mind. And the mind exists. Now, the problem with René Descartes is where he went with this. And we're going to see the damage that really was done in Western philosophy. 
This became the argument in Latin called the cognito ergo sum, or I think, therefore I am. Descartes' argument became the basis for rationalism. If only thinking things exist, then thinking is the source of knowledge. He narrowed it down to this is where we get knowledge. We get it from thinking. It was this philosophy that gained traction on the European continent in the 17th century and became what was known as continental philosophy. Because most philosophers of the rationalistic persuasion, they were not... Uh, uh, they were on the European continent. They were in the Netherlands. They were in France, Germany, Italy, etc. But there, there were those who disagreed with Descartes. They said, Descartes, not so fast. More precisely, they disagreed with where knowledge comes from. If knowledge is original to the mind, then what does one do with the data that is fed to the mind? In other words, if everything I think about is coming out of my own mind, what do I do with things that come from without? For example, when Thomas said to Jesus, I won't believe until I touch your, uh, touch your side, well, I put my hands or fingers in the nails of your hands and, and touch your side, I won't believe, what Thomas was saying is, I need outside evidence. He can't manufacture that in his mind. In fact, this is where the pendulum has swung hard in rationalism, where they said, man, because you exist, this is the basis of humanism. That you can think, and therefore you can be, you can, you can figure things out on your own. Yes. Right. So that, when, I, when you were saying what you said, that came to mind. But when he was seeing Jesus' hands mm -hmm. and the hole in his side, he was dealing with pure truth that couldn't be denied. So Don't steal my thunder, okay? Because you're exactly right. You are exactly right. What he's saying is, if I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what he's saying is, who Thomas was dealing with was truth, embodied truth. And we're going to see that, and I, that, that's where we're going to go. But not yet. we got to get all the trash out of the way, all right? Because we got to talk about Rene Descartes for a little bit. No, we're done with Rene Descartes. We're moving on because there's those who disagreed with where knowledge comes from. If knowledge is original to the mind, then what does one do with this data that comes from without? One cannot depend solely on the mind as the source of knowledge. Certainly, there were those who said, experience has to be involved. For example, <laughs> a child does not have innate knowledge that heat burns. They will learn this, but it will be after one, they have some sort of experience with it, or two, have some sort of experience with someone who is knowledgeable of heat that burns. In the end, the source of knowledge about heat is only reliant on experience. You, there are several things you do not know innately. You don't know that rattlesnakes are poisonous just because that's something you've always known. You do not know, you did not 
grow up thinking, if you're away from here, hey, Norfolk has the worst drivers. You had to come experience that. You experience things and you learn things. It was this philosophy, before let me just give you the point here. Here is, well, you'll see it as we go along. It was this emphasis on experience that introduced the counter to rationalism called empiricism. Again, it's got an ism on the end. So be careful. Don't jump in on this one yet. Empiricism. This line of thought became popular in Great Britain and became known as the empiricists because they believe theories of knowledge should be grounded in experience and physical evidence. So you've got competing philosophies. You've got the continental philosophers in Germany, the Netherlands, France, Italy, that, that part on the continent, the continental philosophers, and you've got these... Uh, um, uh, you've got the, over in England, you've got these others who say, no, it's all experience. You say, well, are those the only two places where people are thinking? I, we're concentrating on Western philosophy right now because we're going to see, we're going to trace the thread. That is what has influenced us in our way of thinking in the Western world. And it's influenced our churches more than we might realize. And we'd also say that not much was going on in the 1600s in the New World at that point. Uh, people were not really thinking about thinking. They were just trying to survive. All right? And so uh, uh, that's what's going on here. So this is continental philosophy versus what's going on in Great Britain or English philosophy or British philosophy. It is your sensory perception, they said, that is responsible for knowledge. It's not your innate notions. And now the quintessential empiricist philosopher was who? This guy, John Locke. He was famous for the idea of tabula rosa, or a blank slate. Locke believed all knowledge was built on experience. Here is the argument in Locke's words. Let us then suppose... The mind to be, as we say, white paper, void of all characters or writing, without any ideas. How comes it to be furnished? Whence comes it by that vast store which, has, which the busy and boundless fancy of man has painted on it with an almost endless variety? Whence has it all the materials of reason and knowledge? To this I answer in one word, from experience. What he's saying is you're born as a blank slate. And everything you know, you have to learn. I used to have a teacher in high school, an art teacher, who used to say, life is a canvas. Paint what you will. You really do have the opportunity to, to paint your own picture. So on the one hand, you have the rationalist who says, no, all knowledge begins in the mind, and on the other hand, you have the empirist who claims, no, all knowledge comes from experience. And these two theories have been the substance of philosophical uh, theory for the past 300 years. And neither one has made much headway in convincing the other side of their thesis. And I actually don't think that tonight we're going to arrive at any resolution on it. On either of these theories... In fact, 
<laughs> I just presented them to you, and I'm not, we're not going to add much to the conversation. In fact, I don't think there is a compelling need to do so because both theories are built on a fundamental error. Both are built on the Protagorean thesis from ancient Greek philosophy that says, of all things, man is the measure, or as we say today, man is the measure of all things. That was Protagoras who said that. And empiricism and rationalism build on that belief that the man is measure of all things. You decide whether it's experience. You decide whether it is uh, 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 innate knowledge. You are the compelling source of knowledge, either something you experience or it is something that you have inside you. But both start with that assumption that man is the measure of all things. Man decides. So you can see the problem with rationalism and empiricism is that they view man as the end of knowledge. The very question is, how do I get knowledge? That knowledge is or can be held by the cognitive faculties of the individual. You are the one who's going to hold knowledge. This is because both theories' fundamental purpose is to, be, is to explain knowledge. And here's where we're going to go with this. This is going to be the emphasis of this entire lecture this evening. They explain knowledge apart from something that I think is vital. They explain knowledge apart from divine revelation. The logical conclusions of both empiricism and rationalism require ignoring at best, or maybe even denying it at worst, the fundamental element of faith. To the rationalist, faith can be doubted. And anything that can be doubted doesn't exist. Anything that can be doubted cannot be knowable because if it is knowable, it wouldn't be doubted. It would be, therefore, faith cannot be rational. On the other hand, to the empiricist, faith does not even exist because all knowledge is based on experience. And once experienced, then something is not known by faith because if you know it, you don't need faith. It really depends on what your definition of faith is. And asking yourselves this question, do I know things by faith? Be careful before we answer that. But the empiricist says, if you experience it, then you don't need faith because you've experienced it. For example... Everybody likes to use the chair as an act of faith. And they put the chair out and they say, hey, sit down. Why did you sit down? Because you had faith. I say, that's hogwash. You sat down because the thousand other times you sat down, that chair has held you. And you had no reason to think it would not this time. And guess what? The next time you sit in a chair, we were, I forget where we were, my brother, we were at a, uh, it was Christmas, and we're sitting in the, in somewhere in Tennessee at this cabin, and my brother, all of a sudden you hear this crash. And I look over, and my older brother is on his back, on the floor. He's not a big guy. And he sat, 
and he had shattered that chair. Guess what he was doing about 10 minutes later? Sitting in another chair. It did not shatter his faith. Why? Because the chair, you don't sit in it because, oh, you think this is going to hold me. I have innate knowledge of chairs. In fact, you ever put a baby in a chair? They don't know what to do. You hold them. They can't balance themselves. They don't have the innate knowledge that this is going to work. They're scared. But after a while, they catch on to chair sitting. And some will do it for the rest of their lives. So that's the reality of of faith, you, once you sit, you don't need faith once you've experienced something. I actually don't have faith the sun is going to come up tomorrow. I've experienced it my whole life. I know it's going to come up based on experience. I don't have to have faith that gravity is going to take over when I jump. I've experienced that my whole life. Now, this can be a challenge for us because we don't live. The Bible doesn't talk much about experience, especially in matters of belief. It doesn't say, well, if you've experienced God, you'll know him. Anything not of experience is of sin. That's not what the Bible says. It says anything not of faith is sin. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. It doesn't say without knowledge, it is impossible to please him. It says without faith. So we have to tackle this. So as we look at this, we've got a third thing. And it's called fideism. You see, the problem with rationalism and empiricism is that they view man as the end of knowledge, that knowledge is or can be held by the cognitive faculties. And this is why both empiricism and rationalism have rejected faith as a legitimate foundation of knowledge. As Christians, we know, though, that this is simply not true. Faith is not only important, it is integral to our knowledge. The Bible teaches that without faith, It is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11, 16. That anything not of faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. Faith, then, is not just a comfortable placebo for the religious masses. It is a vital component to what we as Christians claim we know. This is very evident if we look back at the experience of Thomas in the Gospel of John. Remember what Jesus told Thomas after Thomas placed his hands in Jesus' hands and touched the side of Jesus? Jesus said, Thomas... Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Do you remember what Jesus says to him next? Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, blessed are those who can trust by faith and do not need sensory data to prove it. You may say, oh, if only I could touch the side and put my my, my hands in Jesus' hands, then, then I'll believe. One, it's either not going to happen, or two, when it does eventually happen, it's going to be too late. There are some 
who would say that faith is all that is necessary for knowledge. In fact, they would go so far as to say that reason and faith are hostile to each other. Therefore, faith is completely independent of reason. I've probably said some things already tonight about knowledge and reason that may have made you uncomfortable. Because you might think, well, what Rene Descartes was saying about knowledge and innateness and, and having that, that's, that, that conflicts with faith, and it's all about faith. But this philosophy is known as fideism, and I want to be careful that I call it what it is. It is a philosophy. Fideism. Now, defining fideism is difficult because it is often used pejoratively as a term to describe those who believe that faith is all that is necessary to knowledge. For example, there's a contemporary philosopher by the name of Alvin uh, Platinga who defines fideism this way. He says this. It is the exclusive or basic reliance upon faith alone, accompanied by consequent disparagement of reason and utilized especially in the pursuit of philosophical or religious truth. What Platinga is not saying is that faith alone is wrong. What he is saying is that it is wrong to rely solely on faith while disparaging reason and arguing completely from the stance of faith in order to prove anything. Really, fideism is belief for the sake of belief. It's blind faith or faith without any qualified reasons. In other words, you might hear someone say, well, I believe because the Bible says it and I believe it. We're going to talk in a minute about that. But before we do, to be clear, faith is important. I don't want you to miss this. In fact, I would say it is most important. Just consider Peter's hierarchy of acquisition in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Remember that passage where Peter instructs the Christians to be partakers of the divine nature. In fact, he says, we have already been given all the things, that's the passage, we've been given all the things that pertain to life and godliness. And the first thing, the first component is faith. It is, not, it is onto the foundation of faith that what are we supposed to build in 1 Peter chapter 1? He says, and add to your faith virtue. And unto virtue we are to add knowledge. Peter goes on to list more things to acquire, but he begins with faith. Faith is foundational to godliness. Remember, without faith, it is impossible to please God, and anything not of faith is sin. Faith is fundamental. But faith was never meant to be alone. James tells us what? Faith without works is dead. In James 2.17, Paul tells us that it is through faith that grace works to save us, Ephesians 2.8. And we read, just read from Peter where we start with faith, but we don't end there. We add to it virtue, which is right actions, very similar to what James said, faith without works is dead. And to virtue, we add knowledge. So isolated faith is incomplete. Belief for the sake of belief is incomplete. 
And I make the argument that based on what Peter was saying, faith can and should, faith actually should engender knowledge. In other words, you can know things because of your faith. Faith is reasonable. Faith is rational if it's in the right thing. A great illustration of this comes from Paul's letter to the Romans. Remember what Paul asked in Romans 10, 14? He asked this. Remember this question? How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? Remember that question he asks? And how shall they believe in him of whom, of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Paul answers his own questions in verse 17. Remember what he says? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Before us is an excellent example of the convergence of the senses of rational thought and faith. Paul says that faith comes when we hear. That's sensory data. But we don't just hear anything. You don't have faith just by hearing. You have faith by hearing the word of God. Divine revelation. And this implies that there is an ability to know and understand what is being revealed. Not only are you hearing something, and it's not just anything, it is the word of God. And not only is it just the word of God, you have to be able to think about that. You have to be able to retain that knowledge in your mind. We cannot be doers of the word and not we can we cannot be just doers of the word and not hearers only. If there is not some sort of rational thought applied to the sensory data we receive. Remember we talked about what critical thinking is? It's taking the data and it's really just kind of thinking through it and making decisions on it. That's what being a doer of the word is. It's when you are told something, you process it and then you go act on it. And you can't act on the word of God and be a doer if you don't think. This type of rational faith is very different from fideism. Remember I said, well, about the argument of I believe it because the Bible says it. The fideists will say, there is no rational argument for my faith. I just believe it. I just believe it. Any person of any religion or creed then can be a fideist. You don't have to give explanation for what you believe. Just believe it. Just a gut feeling. I feel, I feel it in my soul. There's a lot of people who really just believe things, and it really makes no sense what they believe. However, Christians seem to hold on to fideism with a much tighter grip and they'll employ this sanctimonious justification for their faith. I believe it because the Bible says so. But if you look closer at that statement, the Phidias is not actually placing the Bible as their sole authority, but rather themselves. I believe it because the Bible says so. To see this, let me illustrate it like this. Suppose I were to say, all crows are black. 
Is this a true statement? Be careful. You might be tempted to say, yes. And you might dogmatically say, yes, I stake my life on it. All crows are black. Oh, experience, right? And maybe on your mother's knee, she said, now, Mike, all crows are black. Trust me. <laughs> they see gray ones. And white, I've seen a white one. But are all crows black? In order to be so dogmatic, you're assuming upon yourself something quite profound. If you were to say, you can't convince me otherwise, all crows are black. You're assuming that you are, guess what? You're omniscient. Because you have supreme knowledge of every crow that has ever existed, past, present, maybe even future, that all crows have always been black. Yeah. This is where we're going. I don't think that argument that 2 plus 2 is 4 is actually faith. I think it's rational. Okay. And, and we're, that's where we're going to go. But I got to get there. Right. And, I'll, and I, think, I think this will answer that question. Because you're right. We're making up our own truth now. And you might have heard that term. Well, this is my truth. We'll, we'll, I think we'll get there. And, I, and if, if we get to the end of this and you were not there... Ask again, all right? So are all crows black? Now, the empirics would say that we are not omniscient, and therefore we cannot really know that all crows are black. But they will say that based on their experience with crows, that they have always been black, it is reasonable to believe that all crows are black. In fact, every crow the empiricist has ever seen, though they have not seen them all, have always been black. So based on experience, crows are always black. Presumably then, the more crows one sees, and the fact that each encounter with that crow is always black, it increases the odds that all crows are black. Go and look at as many crows as you can. In fact, throw out looking for all the black crows. Go try to find a white crow. Because once you find the white crow, the theory's off. You've got to just find one. This is known as inductive reasoning. It is drawing a general conclusion 
from specific instances. Every crow I've seen, I induce that all crows are black. On the other hand, the rationalist would say, no, you don't have to encounter every crow or even the majority of crows to draw the conclusion that all crows are black. It's impossible to do that. The mind has innate knowledge of crows based on the mind's ability to, an to make an analysis or analyze concepts such as linguistics, logic, ethics, mathematics. For example, the rationalist employs linguistics to determine that all crows are black. Indeed, black simply by applying the definitions of the words. The word crow carries the implication of blackbird because the definition of crow is this. A glossy black bird. So the rationalist says, I don't need to see every one. I know what words mean. Going back to what you're saying, I don't need to experience 2 plus 2 equals 4 and believe that by faith. I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Here's another example. When you ever come across that square triangle, you'll know that it's not a triangle. Say, I can't, there's no such thing as a square triangle. Why? Because you know what words mean. Finally, the Phidias would say, while we agree with the rationalists that we cannot possibly see every crow that has ever existed, exists now, or maybe will ever exist, we disagree with them that we have innate knowledge of crows being black on the definition of crow. We disagree because someone had to tell us the definition of those words. I didn't automatically know crow meant glossy black bird. And if crow means glossy black bird, I didn't look it up. But what does crow in Spanish mean? <laughs> and does that mean only English people are logical? Well, we know that's not true. The definitions they say, the Phidias say, the definitions aren't innate. A child does not naturally know that crow, by definition, means a glossy black bird. Instead, the Phidias would say that there is absolutely no way of knowing that all crows are black other than to accept that act by faith. No authority is necessary. I believe it because I choose to believe it. In the end, the Phidias is just as guilty as the empiricist and the rationalist of trusting in themselves to determine what they know. I don't care. I think all crows are black. That's my truth. And your truth may actually be right in that case. But do you actually know it? The ra rationalists trust their mind. The empiricists trust their senses. And the Phidias trust their own faith. All are subjective. And all fail to arrive at any objective means of knowing anything. So it seems that we're at an impasse. We cannot trust our senses. We can't trust our mind. And we cannot trust our beliefs. Just because you believe something by faith, just because you believe it, doesn't mean it's true. Where do we go from here? Could the disciples trust their senses to prove Jesus was alive? Did they have innate knowledge that Jesus was risen again? Did they simply just have to step out on faith and trust that, and believe that Jesus was alive? Is that what we have to do? You might recall that earlier in this lecture I said that I think the sensory data perceived by the disciples was only part of their infallible proofs that Luke is referring to in Acts. Now we're going to look at other forms of what I think are also infallible proofs. Actually, it's just one. It is an infallible proof that is available to us today. To see this proof, we have to go to 1 John 1. In verses 1 through 3 of 1 John, 
John writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it. And bear witness, and show it unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Jesus Christ. And we already, we look at this passage, but let, let's look at it closely. Look at what John says in verse 1. From the beginning we heard, we saw, we looked, and we handled. But what does he say they handled? He doesn't say they handled Jesus' physical, in the physical body. No, he says we heard, we saw, we looked, and handled the word of life. He doubles down on this and says that this life that was shown to us, the one we have seen and bore witness to, the life was eternal and was with God and was shown to us. What was shown to us? His eternal life. This is not eternal life that we, we receive when we say, oh, get saved so you can have eternal life. This eternal life, he says, this eternal life is the description of Jesus. It's his eternality. He was the eternal life that was manifested to man. He was made known to man. He was eternal before the incarnation and is eternal after the resurrection. So John says that the person that they heard, that they saw, that they looked and handled was the word of life. That's what he calls him. And, and he also says, and it was an eternal life. That life that they heard, saw, handled was, an eter was eternal. This coincides with what John said in his gospel when he testified why he wrote what he wrote in his gospel. He said, these things, specific things are written that ye might believe, what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. What is the commonality between those two passages? It's that the sensory data collected by the disciples was exactly in line with Revelation. This is what empiricism, rationalism, and fideism leave out of their respective equations. They leave out divine revelation. What if the data being sensed was the divine revealing himself to us? This is, goes back to what Mike was saying. What Thomas felt wasn't just any person. What the disciples saw when they saw infallible proofs was not just any person. They were sensing truth. They saw the eternal life. They saw the word of life. What if the data we sense, being sensed by these disciples, was the divine revealing himself to them? What if the thoughts being thought were the divine manifesting himself to us? And what if the faith being believed was implanted by the divine author of faith? When we, we have before us divine revelation, Let's go back to our illustration with black crows. While the rationalist says we have innate knowledge of crows being black, and the purist says we have experienced crows are black, and the phidias says we can believe crows to be black because we have faith that they are, all fail because they depend on human nature to develop their knowledge. 
These are all humanist tests for knowledge. But what if I were to say, all crows are black because this truth has been divinely revealed to us? Wait, <laughs> are you saying that I, am I saying I believe all crows are black because God told me they were? Well, no. No, God has not given me special revelation of all crows being black. God has not told me, if you will, that all crows are black. But yes, he has created us with the mental faculties to determine the truth about all crows being black. Notice what I said there. Not the truth that crows are all black, but the truth about all crows being black. And that truth about all crows being black is this. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. That's the truth about all crows being black. Who cares? It does not matter because it is out of the purview of what is actually knowable. I'm not saying that knowledge can't be known and there's things that, that we can't know things. What I'm saying is the fact that crows are all black doesn't, who cares? It doesn't change anything. And I argue that only knowledge that has value is worth knowing. Only knowledge with value. And if you recall, the rationalists, the empiricists, and the phidias all claim knowledge. They claim it apart from divine revelation. But what if divine revelation is the missing component of all knowledge? What if divine revelation is exactly what we need to know anything at all? Is not this what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, 1 through 5? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices as a strong man to run a race." The heavens declare, the firmament shows, the days utter, the nights show, and the rules, or the line that he talks about, the rules and words go throughout all the earth. The natural world is telling us something. Roman 1 narrows down what is being told. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because what, that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. God is revealing himself to man. Paul tells us that the thing that can be known of God are made known to man because God showed us what those things were. What did he reveal? He revealed invisible things. We will deal with that in a minute. But we do, before we do, look at the result of the invisible things being revealed. They are understood so that they leave one without an excuse. They are able to reject, to be rejected or ignored. This is knowledge that if rejected is severely consequential. 
And if you reject this knowledge, if it is such a consequence to reject that knowledge of God, that implies that that knowledge is worth something. What value is it? We're helped in understanding the value by considering these invisible things that have been revealed. The invisible things are his eternal power and Godhead. They are attributes of God that are not completely knowable outside of revelation. This is what Rene Descartes didn't understand. You can't know God's power and his Godhead innately. It had to be revealed. Only through revelation do we know that he has the power to give to all life, breath, and all things, Acts 17.25. Only through revelation do we know that in him we live and move and have our being, in verse 28 of Acts 17. Only through revelation do we know that by him were all things created, and by him all things consist. In fact, it is only through revelation we know anything. But as we return to the idea of revelation, the principle is illustrated in our simplistic crow question to which we already determined the answer to that is insignificant. But to arrive at any answer, we have to consider the technique in which we arrived at our answers. The empirists arrived at their answer because they experienced that all crows are black and that every crow in the history has also been black. How could they possibly know that? Someone told them. Someone told even the empiricist that all crows ever to exist are, 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 have been black. A book may have told them. A parent may have taught them. Regardless of the mode of transmitting that information, revelation was certainly part of the calculus. The same is true for the rationalists and the phidias. Someone had to have told the rationalists that crow means glossy black bird. Someone had to have told the phidias that there is enough evidence to just step out on faith to believe that all crows are black. Revelation occurs in every test of knowledge. Please notice that I didn't say divine revelation. I only used the crow test to illustrate that knowledge of things come from someone telling you. We have no innate knowledge. Everything we know or think we know has to have been revealed to us by someone or something else. Paul makes this principle very clear when he demonstrates the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that the wisdom of the world comes to naught. He goes on to say that the wisdom of God is hidden wisdom and has been revealed and can only be, have been revealed by the Spirit of God. Only this divinely revealed wisdom is glorious in verse 7. So then a biblical test of knowledge recognizes two things. The only things that are actually knowable are those things which have been divinely revealed to us and only those things that are divinely revealed to us are worth knowing. Everything else is conjecture and hypothesis. Therefore, the word of God needs to be the source of our knowledge. It is only the justifiably worthy source for us. Therefore, every piece of information we observe, experience, reflect on, or reason about must be conceptualized, applied, analyzed, synthesized, and evaluated against Scripture. Only then will we have the Christian worldview, and only then will we generate right belief and right action. Without divine revelation, without the scriptures, we are ignorant and hopeless, and we know nothing. So in summary, can you imagine the difference a redeemed mind with a divinely revealed worldview can make? You should be able to imagine it. Paul says it like this. 
He that is spiritual judges all things, for we have the mind of Christ. Going back to the verse that we started in this lecture. Colossians 2.8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. This verse has been misused to generally disparage any study in philosophy. To be sure, you will not be wrong to avoid actual academic study of philosophy, classical, modern, continental, eastern, or any other genre of philosophy. But Paul is not condemning philosophy in general. In fact, when he is preaching on Mars Hill in Acts 17, and when he was speaking to the Cretans in Titus 1, Paul employed philosophic language. But he was not drawn into philosophy and spoiled by it. And you don't have to be a student of philosophy to be a, to be a spoil of spiritual warfare. What, that is the implication of that word spoil. It is someone who has been taken advantage of, who has been led away, captured by the world's wisdom or their own prideful delusions of truth. Paul cautions the church at Colossae to be careful that they are not spoiled by these things or by man's traditions or by the world's standards of knowledge. For these are things that are not of Christ. So while you can avoid formal philosophy, you must be careful that you are not falling prey to the world's concepts of knowledge. Phidiasm, empiricism, rationalism. Christians have neglected to their own peril the ability to critically think for themselves using divine revelation as our sole guide for faith and practice. Why do we not know what to say when someone says, well, I believe I was born a woman? We want to get into an argument about science and why that's, that's not right and logic, but it has been divinely revealed to us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man in his image. And then he created man and one male and female, created he them. That's divinely revealed. But we've neglected the ability to critically think for ourselves using divine revelation. This is why we are troubled on every side. And it has caused us to be impotent and ignorant of the spiritual warfare that's going on around us which will be the topic of next week's lecture, spiritual warfare, and what are Satan's devices in our church? Any questions? Any thoughts? Did I answer your question? Thank you. Any other thoughts or questions before we go? Thank you for listening. Again, next week we'll meet again, and our topic will be Satan's devices. And I think we're going to find that Satan... I want to be careful. We're going to look at one, but I think you'll find that it's something that sneaks in so subtly, and, uh, and most of us may not be aware of it. So we'll look at that next week. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I pray you bless us as we depart here. Give us safety as we go home. And Lord, I pray you watch over us. We, we would like to see some snow, but we also know that there's people who have to work, and there's people who have to go through that. I pray that you would give us safety. Lord, I pray that you'd watch over us. Lord, we thank you for all you do. Help us to think, but only think as the word of God has revealed to us truth because we can believe that and we can have faith in your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org 
or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.